Well, after an autumn statement like that, it would be remiss of me not to do a quick podcast on it. I'm delighted to have joining me James Dowling, who some of you will know from his time working as an official in the Treasury. He was also a special advisor in the DWP. And more recently, he's been working at Lanson's doing policy advisory work for a number of financial services firms. He's a really good guy to talk to about the politics and the economics and the pensions in the autumn statement. Okay, so uh, we, we are now recording. So look, James, it's been a bit over 24 hours since the autumn statement. I've got a headache, right? I've spent the last <laughs> 24 hours reading a lot of pensions papers which in a way makes me happy i feel like it's my purpose in life it was, but it was quite a big event from a pensioner's point of view it was it was and, and i mean i'm still i haven't read everything yet i'm still working my way through that and also thinking about the implications of everything i think there's a lot of interesting stuff to dig yeah, into there yeah. but taking a step back because not everyone is just interested in pensions what was your impression of the autumn statement as a whole well I mean, I, I just said it was quite a big event from, from a pensions point of view, and I think it was. I mean, I think it was a kind of milestone event. But frankly, most people won't have noticed because I mean, if you look at the, let's say, the headline from the Times today, which I, I mentioned purely because I noticed it on Twitter, and I noticed the former Sun editor, David Yelland, tweeting it saying the, the Times headline was Ta- Hunt eases tax burden, and David Yelland tweeted, the Times is lying, it's as simple as that. And, mm. you know, the focus from the political, but that kind of, I think, gets the heart of heart of the kind of political focus of the budget, which is... Not Hunt, a budget. I'm sorry, I shouldn't make that a, that fairly basic mistake, but, I, but, but nevertheless... It felt, it felt like a budget in a lot of ways, it. didn't it? Did well, like I mean, given I used to run the finance bill, this is a kind of gross thing to say but <laughs> frankly you know there's not a lot of difference a lot of the time apart from the fact that one has a finance bill after it yeah. but anyway from the political point of view you know bearing in mind where we are where we are in the electoral cycle you know hunt sunak was clearly were clearly under pressure you know very publicly under pressure from the right to cut taxes and uh, you know i think they took they saw it as their need partly to assuage the right but also partly to build their platform to the election to do that and and you know, they they did that quite spectacularly and frankly quite expensively so you had the uh, famously the national insurance cut 2% off class 1 nicks i mean also cut it almost entirely for the self employed but you know and the kind of permanent full expensing you know two big one personal one business tax cuts so that was probably at least in terms of the kind of fiscal and political firepower that was mo- where most of the budget went and you know alongside i suppose you know uprating welfare in line with, in line with inflation uprating the state pension hmm. in line with the triple lock and top the centre of that together, you've got a kind of package of which most of, of, which, of which what I've said is the most of it. That's slightly over twenty billion, twenty-one billion pounds. And Hunt, on the basis of a fiscal approach that essentially held post-election spending at a less than one percent real real terms increase, had twenty-seven billion pounds to spend. So what he's basically done is spend tomorrow's spending or tomorrow's tax take, depending on your take on these things now and that creates a real issue if you're thinking about if, if you're labor if you're rachel reeves and on one hand you've got to you're, you're going to be challenged to say whether you want to whether you will continue with the tax cuts that hunt offered and, and she has said she will it was already a tough ask but how the hell do you do what you, what you want to do you know they're 28 billion less than 28 billion really but they're 28 billion green prosperity fund 
Ed Miliband's Green, Green Prosperity Fund, you know, it's very questionable how they're going to afford that. And obviously, that question that the, that the Tories are going to repeatedly put to Rachel Reeves as a key plank of their attack on Labour, while at the same time being able to say to the populace that, you know, we have turned a corner, questionable when inflation is still running at nearly 5%, but nevertheless, we have turned the corner. And this is the benefit of us turning the corner. You will start seeing it in your pocket. Now, again, when inflation is running at 5% and you've had the highest real terms cut in living standards since records began, you know, one might ask whether anyone notices, but they've got to hope that that cuts through because otherwise they're sunk. <laughs> well, yes. And uh, I mean, there's a lot in there and we could, I'm conscious of going beyond my pay grade in terms of economic analysis. But I mean, a couple of things struck me. One is, as you say, he's given everything away, which presumably leaves him with, you know, there's a bit of a gamble in terms of his room for manoeuvre going into next year and where we might find ourselves, say, in the spring, if we're thinking yeah, about a spring yeah. general election. That felt like a bit of a political gamble. Yeah. The inflation thing, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that isn't that on the Bank of England, largely, as to whether inflation comes well, down or not? they're taking credit for it. It's really questionable whether, whether you know, I don't think many people believe really that the government... <laughs> The government's done that, but they're going to take whatever credit they can for it. Because, I mean, you've touched on Rachel Reeves and Labour bending over backwards not to be giving anything away in terms of tax bombshell kind of narratives that, that mm. could otherwise emerge. But the tax take is kind of at an extraordinarily high level relative to the last we've been, 50 years or we, something, right? Yeah, we've been at the highest tax take since the war, since, well, actually, since Sunak was Chancellor. And I mean, I, I could be wrong on this, but I think it was the 21 autumn statement where that was the first time we hit that mark, you know, highest tax take in 70 years since the war. And we've been, nothing's come down since, it's just got worse. So we've been the highest tax take, the even highest tax take since the last highest tax take since then. I think that that's a real challenge. I mean, because on one hand, I mean, notwithstanding the kind of last at the Everyone's forgotten about the conference and probably best would forget about the Tory party conference. But at that point, Sunak stood up and said that he was the change candidate, yeah, trying to present past, himself as yes. a, yeah, yeah, with a 30-year broken consensus. Since then, he's appointed David Cameron as his foreign secretary. <laughs> mm. uh, and then basically, I don't see how else on the basis of yesterday, he can be now kind of falling into running anything, but a kind of, you know, we're on, things are getting better, don't blow it strategy. And that doesn't feel like a change with the past. That feels like a kind of stick with us, stick with nurse for fear of worse approach for the next election. And the unspoken um, price for this giveaway is a pretty brutal restriction on public spending so yeah, well, away from away from the protected departments 20 percent uh, things, things are going to get worse aren't they in terms of quality yeah of life. i mean i so, so he's he's penciled in a not quite one percent real terms increase in, in spending across the board basically after the election that is going to be more than swallowed just by the needs of the nhs alone and that's before you get into the fact that you know for example the tories have said they want to increase at some point, defence spending to 2.5%. Mm. And then what do you do about everything else? I mean, the kind of, you know, they need to fix the NHS. You know, waiting lists are un unfeasibly long. But, you know, the courts are on their knees, uh, for example. I mean, it, it, everything, I mean, the, the entire kind of public estate needs more money thrown at it. 
as well as more efficiency. So it, it just doesn't seem sustainable to that any government can hold to the current spending plan. The demographics are not in our favour here. I mean, as the population it's gets just older, get worse. you know, the, the, the state pension and the NHS, right, the sort of spending on the elderly is only going to go up from here and that's going to put more of a strain on the younger generations shrinking relative tax base to pay for it all right i mean this, yeah, is, well, this I, is not a pretty picture yeah well i say the nhs i mean i think actually most of the damage is being done by social more of the damage is being done by social care but yes it's the kind of dhsc estate that's basically swallowing most of it and then you know do you want to fund the military do you want to fund the courts what do we do with international aid? The triple lock, by the way, April to April, so from last April to the next April, is going to have had an increase of twice the size of the international aid budget. Okay, my impression is that boosting the international aid budget doesn't win you votes. No, no, I don't think it is. But the, I don't think this is an argument for scrapping the international aid budget. It, it's more, I'm more trying to make the point of the scale of the kind of amount of money that's being thrown towards the triple lock as against other other commitments. Now, that doesn't seem sustainable, but it, obviously in the run-up to an election, no one's going to be talking about scrapping that. No, no, indeed. In the context of all of that, segueing elegantly into the pension stuff, you know, I have some sympathy with a government that says, well, look, we need growth. We, you know, we've got to get it from somewhere. We need to bootstrap the economy from somewhere. And look, pensions industry, you've got a couple of trillion pounds. Could we please use some of that to stimulate economic growth? And, you know, I can see, I, initially, I was very sceptical about that narrative and that agenda mm -hmm. back in the mm -hmm. summer with the Mansion House. I've actually become more and more sympathetic to it because, because we need that, don't we? Yeah, I think we do. And I think... I do think the government is sincere about this. I mean, if you kind of try to trace the fault lines across government in terms of their thinking about pensions, I think you'll probably find, you know, overall, you know, the concern is obviously getting savers to save more, getting better value for those savings, and then getting UK pension schemes to invest in the UK, whether there's equities or, or long-term fixed assets infrastructure. And the kind of across, across government, probably the Treasury is a bit more interested in the latter bit. DWP is a bit more interested in the former bit. Not saying they don't care about the others, it's just that that's probably where the emphasis lies. I do think that's genuine, and I do think we saw a lot of that. You know, I think it was a kind of milestone event in terms of the kind of government setting out all its thinking at once, even if it wasn't kind of pensions freedom, for example. It was, you know, significant in terms of the way they set out their thinking and set out the direction of travel. Reading through the various papers, and some of them were responses to previous calls for evidence, and some of yeah. them were further consultation papers. Again, to be fair to the government, it felt quite strategic. When you take a step back and look at look at them as a whole, I mean, the two overwhelming agenda that come through from this are one, fewer, bigger, better run pension schemes. There is no reality that I can envisage from here where that does not turn out to be the case. And and again, you know, coming back to our, our friend Rachel Reeves, I can't see Labour really significantly deviating from that trajectory. So no, one, no. Con consolidation, and two, as a consequence of that consolidation and in, in concert with that, more investment in the UK economy. Yes, I think, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the government... I think Rachel Reeves would not would not see any. There's no reason for why Rachel Reeves would see differently on this. The government wants consolidation to get better value for savers. They also want consolidation because that scale is what they need to get the kind of investment, the level of investment they want in into the UK. And so it was very interesting. I mean, I think in recent years we've seen a real push in that direction. You know, we saw, for example, a real a real move towards on on master trusts. 
you know, we saw the kind of small pots consolidation. A, a lot of that is about, you know, trying to build. I think probably the ambition is we, we want to be where Canada or Australia have been a long time ago. And, you know, we're, we're very much playing catch up from that point of view. But that is that is definitely what they want to do. Apart from anything else, that's how you get the value in the infrastructure investment that, that we need. And again, I think it's a credit to the incumbents in the Treasury. I know there's been a big reshuffle recently. One of them, the several resets this government has had in yeah. recent yeah. months. And, you know, Paul Maynard, the new pensions minister, is only 10 minutes into the job. And Andrew Griffith is no longer at the Treasury and so on. But, you know, there's been a real effort to address every angle of this so yeah. you know we had the consult- consultation on trustee skills and culture you know what can we do differently with trustees they ask questions around fiduciary duty they ask questions around a trustee register and trustee training and accreditation and that pushes us towards fewer bigger better run pension schemes yes. i'm per- personally really interested in the the pot for life or lifetime provider as they are now referring to it. it so back in the summer it was pot for life i think essentially it's the same concept this idea of uh, which i've always been very sympathetic towards i pitched this to steve yeah, got, about 10 years I, ago i've got a fair amount of sympathy as well i have yeah. to say i mean it's a real it's a real challenge for the workplace group pension scheme but pensions industry but i i do think for if if you're thinking about the interests of of individual savers and how you get individual savers to engage more with their pensions. That's one of the things you have to do. And the big challenge with that, and I think it is a legitimate concern, is how do we make this work in a way that doesn't break the the whole employer role in pension provision? Because for now, today, yeah. we're building, we build auto-enrolment on employer designation of a workplace pension arrangement and of enrolling employees into that pension arrangement and doing the heavy lifting and dealing with a pension provider. And if we start to deviate from that and employers dealing with a single provider, things do get messy. And so it's clear reading the paper, the DWP is very sensitive to that. And they're asking quite tentative questions around, you know, we know this is potentially risky and disruptive. So how do we do it? And what should the sequencing look like? But I didn't get any sense of them saying, we're not sure we should do this. It's more, we want to do this. How do we do this? And looking for industry input on all of that. Yeah, I think if you're thinking about, I, I mean, I, I do think kind of at its heart, what do they want? They want more people to save. They want more saving. And so auto-enrollment is, is essentially the vehicle for that. But they also just want more engagement in people to be more engaged in their saving and, to, and if nothing else, to realise, to think earlier about what is facing them. And so, you know, part of that is actually probably people having a better, a more direct relationship with their own pension. You know, most people in the street probably don't know how many pensions they've got or certainly don't know what the value of those are. And so if you've got a pot for life, you know, if you've got this kind of pot follows member approach, then hopefully over time you get to a, a system where you don't have these orphaned pots. And also, you know, the provider doesn't have the cost of maintaining all these tiny pots of cash. Yeah, yeah. so it's, everybody wins from it. For the industry, it's a small pots problem. For the member, it's a multiple pots problem. But either way, you know, fewer, bigger, better run pension pots is, is in everybody's interest. And, you know, for anyone that's interested in looking at the paper, they do draw out comparisons with Australia and Chile, Mexico, New Zealand. They look at how mm. this sort of thing has been implemented in other jurisdictions. They talk a bit about some of the technology solutions, which is clearly a critical question on all of this. And I guess the point there is you don't need to invent any new technology to make this work. You just need to look at what technology is available and how best 
to integrate that, to reverse engineer that for the existing UK market. But it's all doable. Yeah, yeah. I'd say I found, I don't often say this about this kind of stuff, but I found all the documents extremely easy to read. The looking to the future, I imagine that's the one you're thinking about, consultation document. I have to say, I thought the kind of front, certainly the front end of that was extremely clear and extremely easy to read. And the kind of ambition... I thought was was very understandable, but also very easy to to you know, get on board with. I thought I thought it was very effectively done. Although I still, you know, I'm still quite amused by the idea of my friend Paul Maynard, you know, new pensions minister, being handed these what ten different kind of consultation documents and being asked just to put his name at the bottom. If you could just sign them. this, please, minister. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what he's doing now. But, uh, Either that, or he's read an awful lot of stuff <clears throat> very quickly. So. He probably has, in fairness, done also done that. But, uh, I but tell yes. you, what I also liked was the letter to TPR and FCA setting yeah, up a vision for was... pensions in 2030. I thought that was a really interesting document, right? I thought so. And I thought, again, I mean, if you're looking for, for me, two kind of documents sprang out as a kind of really good kind of narrative positioning piece. And that was that letter was was absolutely one of them. And a version of that also was the Autumn Statement Pensions Reform document that appeared on the, the Treasury website or the DWP website, which basically had a version of the same narrative on it. You know, your three prongs, providing better, safer outcomes, a more consolidated market, enabling pension schemes to invest in a diverse portfolio, and the kind of corralling the different interventions under that I, I thought was very i thought was a very easy understandable read and provided really clear direction of travel which to your earlier point about rachel reeves it's very difficult to see an, an, an incoming government which presumably we're going to get in a year's time or thereabouts it's very difficult to see them stepping back from that mm, mm. no i agree so other stuff worth touching on there there's a very brief note on the fca website about value for money and we're going to hear more about that. And I think that's an important element of the equation. So we're kind of in a holding pattern on value for money at this moment in time, having had various bits of work done on that through last year by the DWP. We're going to hear more on that in 2024. And that was referenced a number of times through different papers as being a critical component of this move towards the consolidated pension sector. They really do seem to put a lot of emphasis on we will be watching and we will expect schemes effectively to wind themselves up if they don't measure up on this. I mean, that's quite a big deal. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, that's a, you know, I think you must be familiar with that graph where you've got a kind of a, you know, a number of large schemes and then a very, very long tail of very small schemes. You know, if you're sitting in DWP or the Treasury, you want to be wrapping the long tail back into the front. And that's obviously one mechanism you use to you use to focus minds to that end. So one of the bits where I felt could I could feel a sense of frustration coming through between the lines was on the question of decumulation, and they've done some work around that, and they were effectively saying, I mean, I could almost read them saying we really wanted to get a bill in the King's speech and we couldn't get one, but we're going to need to legislate for some of this stuff as soon as we can, and they were saying, look, we. We, we're setting out the direction of travel on this. You know, we want schemes to really take responsibility for helping people through into retirement. We've got some ideas on how to do that, but we don't think we can actually make that a thing until until we can actually legislate for it and get all schemes to do this thing. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. And it, I mean, it's interesting, of course. I mean, since the 
I can, I can never remember. I mean, this is a, an appalling confession. I can never remember if it's the Royal Mail or the Post Office. But since the Ro- CDC... The, Royal Mail, yeah. Yes. Since the CDC for that, I mean, you know, there's been a question about kind of what else they are for. But I mean, in the past few years, quite clearly, and you know, with the rise of trusts, there's been some real interest in seeing whether you can use that to just drive better saver outcomes into accumulation. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was going to come on to CDC. And as you say, the, the Royal Mail thing is still currently lost in the post, but is expected to land soon. But CDC cropped up in a number of the papers. I mean, in one paper, they actually ask whether they should require, they, they, they reference in passing, they don't ask the question, but they do say, you know, we, we've been thinking about whether we should require schemes to offer CDC, which I thought in itself was pretty striking in terms of where their thinking is at on this, they see CDC as a really important element of the equation in delivering better outcomes for members, giving better value, keeping money invested for longer. They see that as part of this consolidated landscape they're trying to move towards by 2030. I guess my challenge for this is for for pension schemes that aren't currently thinking about how they fit CDC into their offering. You know, you you need to you need to think about that because you know there's nothing from the DWP that says this is not going to happen. Yeah, again, this is where it's partly because it's quite technocratic, but partly because ideologically I can't see Labour having a problem yeah, with absolutely. it. And also, it's kind of in line with you know the outcomes that you would want to see. I can't see that this isn't going to happen. I mean, if anything, actually, the Labour parties would be more interested in CDCs simply because they're often. They're often a solution you bring to large public sector DB schemes. So, yeah, I kind of think that it's a direction of travel. And also, I mean, in narrative terms, it's quite interesting because it feels like it's cutting against slightly the thrust that came from, you know, 2015 and Mm -hmm. uh, pensions freedom. And we're back into this is much more defaulting people into a particular regime. It's more paternalistic, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. But of course, that's what AE is about as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting that... Pension freedoms was that was a tax change. Every everything they're driving through here is a regulatory change. They're pulling up you've got both hands on the regulatory lever and they're driving change through the imposition of things like value for money and trustee responsibilities and just making it more and more challenging in a good way to run a pension scheme so that the only ones that can clear that raising bar are the ones that really do offer a good outcome for members and CDC yeah. they see as part of are the, are the bigger ones inevitably who can afford the high standards and afford the scale that, that, that comes with that. And one of the many papers they put out when they talk about the regulation of master trusts, there's a lot yeah. in there about the consolidation of the marketplace going forwards and how scale delivers better value. Now, some people listening to this may, may may dispute the conclusions that the DWP and the Treasury have come to, but the reality is these are the conclusions they've come to and this is the world they're seeking to engineer. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think kind of it's pretty clear. I mean, the master, you reference Master Trust, you know, it waxes lyrical about the, the benefits of Master Trust and then says this review is conclusive in its finding the direction of travel for this market being Master Trust continues strong growth and higher concentration. So, you know, government is absolutely stark on this. And again, I just think kind of this doesn't feel like one where, where Labour is, where there's going to be much difference with, with the opposition. I think for the industry, it poses some interesting questions because I know that, take come, come back to the lifetime provider thing. So the master trust will do what the master trusts do and the sector will consolidate and the big will prosper loosely, you know, and, and there'll be some specialist ones at the side. And 
the papers were keen to point out that they're not solely looking to big providers as the only answer. You know, they also recognize they don't want an oligopoly, as they referenced in one, one of the papers. You know, they want dynamism, they want creativity, they want challenge. So there's that. But I think for the industry, you know, bearing in mind the default consolidators initiative that's already in train for the existing stock of small pots, throw in lifetime provider into the equation. Now, in one version of the future, some of the the platforms and the SIP providers and the smaller operators, you know, will have a role to play. And they might see the lifetime provider as an opportunity for them to come out to play in the in the accumulation world. And they, they can be designated as a lifetime provider. And that's good news for them. But in another version of the future, actually it's just the beer moths who survive. It's the nest, the you know, the, the legal and general and people's partnership people's and, pension, and, and yeah. like you know, they're the ones who 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 are the winners when the music stops and everybody else falls by the wayside and those SIP and platform providers I referenced, all they end up doing is selling a, a pittance of, of of drawdown at the margins to the few people that still want to take advantage of the pension freedoms. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on whether there's an alternative future or, you know, how that all plays out. Yeah, I have so hadn't thought of it that way. And (laughs) my suspicion is that maybe someone has, but I wouldn't be surprised if no one in government has thought through, you know, however many years down the line, do we end up with just a handful of very, very large pension funds who basically have hoovered up everyone else and who all employers go to, or who who all individuals go to, I suppose it will be. So what do, what what do I think? I think the the direction of travel is inevitably consolidation. You will inevitably get, and I think this is this is absolutely the policy intent. You will inevitably get the smaller schemes rolling into the larger schemes, rolling into the master trusts. So that that, that will definitely happen. But it seems difficult to see the world that you've just described happening anytime soon. Yeah, maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself um, here. I was just trying to think through how this plays through. And yeah. I mean, I found it interesting on the lifetime provider or pot for life, or as we were calling it back in the summer, on that model, a lot of the platforms were really enthusiastic about this as a potential solution because they could mm-hmm. see it as a business opportunity for themselves. And they may be right about that. Yeah. But look, yeah. we've got a we've got a consultation open now. They've very generously given us an extra week for Christmas. So it doesn't close until, I can't remember, sometime mid-late January. But, you know, I guess for anyone interested in all of this to not respond to this consultation would seem a bit of an oversight at this point. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and my guess would be, you know, probably if the world that you've described with a handful of enormous schemes just doing all the kind of pension saving and, and investing into the economy, I'm, I think most politicians, for example, would find it difficult to sign up for that. Probably most of it, a lot of officials would as well, as described. But, you know, certainly they want to see more consolidation. Yeah. But I mean, also, and, and I think you're right, I think they would like to see a dynamic and vibrant market where new challenges can come to market with new technology and new ideas and new ways of doing things and have an opportunity to prosper and not get shut out by, by the big yeah. boys. And I th- yeah, and I think the competition point is really important because one point that does come through in the Master Trust paper is that they see Master Trust as a key part of the competitive landscape rather than just these these monsters that are just hoovering up everyone. Okay, so was there anything else on the autumn statement? I'm interested to talk to you a little bit about just just take a step back again to, to to the kind of political situation. I'm interested to get your thoughts on how you think things will play through next year. 
But before we go, there was there anything else in the autumn statement you think we should pick up on? Well, I suppose one point I was going to make also gets to the question about next year, which is he has done his numbers on a particular basis. He spent tomorrow's spending, if you like, now, tomorrow's tax now. That creates a real question about what the time after the election looks like. And, you know, the Tories will use their will use every opportunity to challenge Rachel Reeves on what she's going to do. It does, though, create a real question for what happens next year. You know, their numbers are also predicated on the basis that, for example, you know, the budget will confirm that, that fuel duty will be increased, and no one believes that's going to happen. So that said, quite a lot of people have now been saying, well, you know, does this mean there's, there's spring elections on the cards? And, you know, well, maybe I'll be proved wrong in a few months' time, but I'm still a bit sceptical that we are going to see an election any time before basically a, year's, a year hence. Yeah, because they're still... What- 15, 20 points behind in the polls. And why would you yeah, why would you pull I, the trigger on an election when all the independent experts say you're going to lose? Right. And I think you know, it's very human to hold out for... The instinct will be to hold out for something to come up that turns the dial. You know, personally, I think the fundamentals are set at this point. You know, I, I can't see anything t- turning it, but that doesn't mean that if you're in government, you're not going to hope that it will change. That means that even if they're thinking now... Maybe we'll keep the door open to a spring election, and they'd be silly, I suppose, not to keep that as an option at this point. You know, when you get to next year, I'd be very surprised if that's what actually happened. And also, you know, the budget is another staging post. If their plan now is to basically in between now and let's assume it's like November next year, just for the sake of argument, you know, the plan between now and then is therefore to spread the benefits of growth let's call it that, as far as possible, hope that people start noticing it in their pockets. And the budget is an opportunity to do that. And if you're holding a budget in the teeth of an election, actually, it may not be the kind of event that you want it, you otherwise want it to be. Um, and that, the other point is that September next year is a key milestone in the rollout of the childcare reforms. So by September, all under school age children above the age of, I think, nine months get 15 hours free childcare. Something you'd appreciate, yeah? Yeah, something, something you really would appreciate. Now, if I were the Tories, I'd want that to happen. Yeah, I'd want people to feel that and I'd want to get the credit for that. Okay, slightly left field question, or indeed perhaps a right field question. How worried do you think the Tories are about reform and Nigel Farage and, and that, that I think drain on their votes from the right? I'd be very worried about them. So I, th- I think they're polling at, what, 10%, something like that now? That's a real challenge. And that's particularly a real challenge in the bits of the 2019 coalition that was Boris Johnson's unique achievement, so the Red Wall, if you like. The question, I suppose, you have to ask yourself, if you're a Tory strategist, is whether retaining those bits is really achievable. And well, if it isn't, <laughs> then what do you do? You bring back David Cameron, the man who won in 2010, to at least at least keep the blue wall, which is your kind of traditional Tory, liberal Tory voting heartland, Surrey, Hertfordshire, etc., the home counties, Cambridgeshire, Oxfordshire, the shires, at least to reassure them. And you don't, by the way, pull out of the ECHR. Yeah. And maybe maybe you still lose, but maybe you lose less badly. Yeah, uh, I, majority or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I mean they'll be hoping for, they'll be hoping to somehow scrape a win, but uh, you know I think maybe at least yes, you'll 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 stem the bleeding. Good stuff to be continued, James. That's been really interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. It's been great to do this. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.